All right, thank you for being here tonight. It's great to see everybody. I asked Melissa to sing that song. Not only is it one of my favorite hymns, but it goes right along with what we're going to be talking about. That first verse, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Tonight we're going to continue our study on the Apostles' Creed, and tonight we're going to be looking at the line that says, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Probably not something that we hear, taught, preached that often, but I hope tonight you get a sense of the significance of that, why that line is in the Creed. Um, but maybe we'll start with a question. I found that maybe it works better if I can ask the questions instead of answering the questions. So we're going to start with a question tonight. And so I need some participation. What do you think is the Old Testament passage that is quoted the most in the New Testament? What might that be? All you Bible scholars out there. Exodus? Okay. It's a good guess. Not right, but it's a good guess. <laughs> Isaiah, like 53, the suffering servant. That, that's a great idea, too. So, man, this guy, he's in my head. You've been looking at my notes. Uh, wow, that was really good. The answer is Psalm 110, verse 1. And the Bible says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it might be surprising to you. I mean, we heard some really good answers talking about some of these big events in the history of Israel, events like the Exodus, passages like Isaiah 53 that were so monumental. Maybe even some of you might have thought about like Psalm 23 or something like that. So why is it that Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? And it has to do with this very doctrine that we're going to study tonight, the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. Like I said, it's not something really that we hear a, a lot about. And I think that's probably because most people think of the ascension as like the end of the story of Jesus, right? He, he lived, he died. He was buried, he rose, and he ascended. And that's kind of like the exclamation point of his life and ministry. People think about it maybe as like his return trip to heaven. You know, we make a big deal of his first trip to earth, incarnation. We talk about that time. And so people think, well, yeah, the ascension, well, that's his return trip to heaven. But I hope tonight you'll see that it's much more than that. It, it's a distinct event that stands on its own. It's a meaningful event that has significance for us. <clears throat> and it hasn't always been this uh, forgotten doctrine. Even just the fact that it's in the Apostles' Creed should give us at least a sense of why this is so important. Remember uh, what Dr. Moeller said. We talked about this in our introduction to this series. But as he was setting up the study of the Apostles' Creed, he said, look, all Christians believe more than what is contained in the creed, but none can believe less. All Christians believe more than what's contained in the creed, but none can believe less. Meaning, everything in the creed 
is of vital importance to what we believe as Christians and the foundational truths on which we stand. It, this creed has been around since the 4th century. So, I mean, for the last 1,700 years, it's been memorized, it's been recited, it's been taught. It's been, I mean, maybe some of you grew up in a church where every Sunday you recited the, the Apostles' Creed. So there's something about this ascension that maybe we've missed. And it's not just that he ascended. It's not just that he left earth and went to heaven. There's a Jewish legend that teaches us that Moses ascended to heaven. The Bible doesn't support that, but it's a legend. Uh, Islam teaches that Muhammad ascended to heaven. But in both of those cases, the ascension was really just, it was like an historical event that cemented what they did on earth. Like, hey, this is what is sort of the exclamation point on, on what they did. But in contrast to that, the ascension of Christ really ushers in a new era. It's something that has, not, it's not just an historical event, but it's something that has really deep significance. It has eschatological significance. History changed because Christ ascended and is at the right hand of God. And not only did history change, but something happened. So there's a difference. Like, it made a difference in the first century, and it made a difference today. It makes a difference right now. As, as we're going to look at God's word, it makes a difference right now that Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God. Al Mohler, in his book, he said it this way, As much as we needed Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross, we also need his intercession before the Father. So I hope tonight you'll start to get a sense of why this is so important. So here's how we're going we're gonna to start. I want to start by reading just a couple of the biblical passages uh, that, that describe the ascension. And then we're going to look at why it's important. So in your outline, you'll see this theology of ascension. We're not there yet. We're going to read a little bit. And there's going to be a lot of Bible tonight. We call this a Bible study, though, right? So there's going to be a lot of flipping. Um, I apologize to you and to Ronnie, who's doing our slides back there. Thank you, Ronnie. Uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 26. So just want to highlight, we're not going to read every single passage where it's mentioned, but I want to highlight a few. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is standing before uh, Caiaphas. He's standing before uh, this religious council. And in chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So we see in this passage, Jesus predicts his ascension and also talks about his second coming, but he predicts his ascension. Mark also mentions it. We're not going to read uh, Mark's account, but go with me to Luke and Luke has a lot to say about this. We're going to start in Luke chapter 24. And um, we're going to look at several different verses there in that chapter. <clears throat> if you remember where we are in the Gospel of Luke here, the road to Emmaus. And so there's these two disciples that are walking and Jesus kind of comes up next to them and they have this, Really, really intriguing conversation. Uh, we'll, 
we'll skip around a little bit. We'll start in chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now jump with me down to verse 25. You know, Jesus is, he asks them, you know, what's going on? They're like, do you not know what, what all has happened? And in verse 25, Jesus kind of rebukes them a little bit. He says, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to hear how that conversation went? A Bible study about Jesus by Jesus. That would have been something. Uh, Now jump with me down to verse 50. So... Jesus finishes these disciples, finally allows them to recognize him, see who he really is. Then Jesus appears to his other disciples, and right at the end of chapter 24, verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Now, you know, Luke was also the author of Acts, and probably when we mention the ascension of Jesus, maybe Acts chapter 1 is the first thing that comes to your mind. This was really important to Luke. He, he talked about it in his gospel. He's also going to talk about it in Acts. Go with me uh, to Acts chapter 1. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is the verse that a lot of us know from this chapter, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is where we see that the same way that Jesus left will be the same way that Jesus returns. Okay, so with that as sort of the the backdrop of what we're going to be talking about tonight, let's talk about the significance of this. Why does it matter? The first thing I think we see is a vindication of Jesus. The ascension really serves as a way to vindicate his life and his ministry, his works that he did on earth. So the first way I see that is, remember John 19, Jesus says, it is finished. And then the Bible says he, he gave up his spirit. It's this really cool way that, that the author says, you know, they, they didn't kill him. His life wasn't taken from him. He, he gave it up. So there he is on the cross he says, it is finished, and then gives up his, his spirit. And you see in that one phrase, it is finished, it's, it's mixed with this profound sense of grief and sorrow because, because Jesus has just died, but it's also mixed with this really sure victory. 
Why? Because all of God's promises have been fulfilled, every prophecy down to the smallest detail. God's plan had not been thwarted by Satan. And so we see in in that it is finished, this this vindication of Jesus. In Jesus' ministry, another thing that he did was uh, you see him making all things new. Uh, Go with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. And this is one of the prophecies about, about the Messiah. Verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. But I want us to look uh, at verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> so verse 1 is talking about the coming of the Messiah, and then in verse 6 we, we read this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And you read this, and a lot of times uh, when you read prophecies, the prophecies were, were mixed in terms of something that was maybe closer in the future and something that was was much further in the future so in verse one we see him predicting the coming of the messiah and verse six through eight we're like well that still hasn't even happened yet that that's still future but but think with me what jesus did when he when he walked the earth think of all the miracles that he performed you know when you when you see the miracles that he did they weren't just demonstrations of his power they weren't just him saying hey you want to know how powerful i am Watch this blind guy, he can see now. Watch this lame guy, he, he can walk. No, they were glimpses of what Isaiah is talking about here. They were glimpses of Jesus making all things new. Jesus taking the world that is broken and marred and disfigured because of sin and making it what God had intended it to be, which is very good. Jesus was giving us these little glimpses. And so as he would raise the dead, that was Jesus' way of saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm Lord. I'm Lord over this. There, death, death is not going to have the final word. Jesus was making all things new. Jesus was, was not only making all things new, he was forgiving sins. I love the story in the Gospels where the, the crippled guy uh, is brought to Jesus, right, lowered down through the roof. And... And it's this crazy story, right? These guys, I, I would love to have seen that. What did that look like for these guys to be putting a hole in the roof and lowering them down? And there's a bunch of logistical and practical things I'd love, like how did that actually work? I don't know. But, but remember what Jesus says when he sees the crippled guy. You would expect him to say what? Hey, you're healed, right? Walk. But that's not the first thing he says. What's he say? He says your sins are forgiven. And if you're his friends, I wonder if they were thinking, hey, Jesus, that's not why we brought him, right? We brought him because he can't walk. Your sins are forgiven. And then remember, they, they start mumbling and grumbling, and they're like, well, who is this guy who thinks that he can forgive sins? And Jesus says, so that you can know that I have the power to forgive sins, watch this. Okay, rise up and walk. And the healing, the demonstration of his power was a way of illustrating the fact that Jesus has greater power than that. 
Jesus has power to heal you from the inside, to forgive you of all of your sins. The ascension underscores the fact that what Christ did was, was powerful. Um, let, let's, uh, let's read a couple passages about this. We're going to be in Hebrews a, a lot tonight. Um, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll try to show you what I mean. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here, the author of Hebrews is connecting his ascension, the fact that he ascended and sat down as a way of putting a period on his work of purification of sins. Uh, he says the same thing later in the book. Go to, go to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, there it is again, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There's our, one of our allusions to Psalm 110, verse 1. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So once again, author of Hebrews connects his ascension, the fact that he sat down at the right hand of God as a way of him putting a period on his work of forgiving sins. And then let's, uh, one more under this, the vindication of Jesus' ministry, I think it grounds his exaltation. Why is it that Jesus is, is so highly exalted and the ascension is, is part of the reason? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. And uh, in verse 18, we pick up right in the middle of a prayer. One of the things I love about the book of Ephesians is Paul uh, keeps writing out his prayers for the church there in Ephesus, and this is one of those prayers in, in chapter 1. And he says in verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, this is his prayer for the church there, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. There's another allusion there to Psalm 110. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul, in the middle of this magnificent prayer, is talking about the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. He seated him at his right hand, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And so there Jesus is high and exalted. Maybe it brings to mind that great hymn from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, you know, God gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the first thing we see is this vindication of Jesus. The second thing we see is uh, the reality of heaven. When Jesus ascended, he went somewhere. So what I mean, it's not like Jesus was just standing there and he just like poof, disappeared. 
right? Whatever happened, and, and the details aren't super clear, but he ascended slowly enough for people to actually see what was happening and where he was going. Because when the angel comes and looks in Acts 1, they say, why are you still looking up? You know, they're all still just standing there like, hey, we watched him go. The angels, why are you still, why are you still here that he's going to come again? Um, go with me to John chapter 14. <clears throat> Read this passage a lot uh, at funerals. John chapter 14, Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus went to a place. You know, some people might try to say, well, heaven is, heaven is a state of mind. Heaven is an attitude. But the Bible is clear that heaven is a place. And when Jesus ascended... He ascended to an actual place. Even uh, in the end of the Bible, we get to Revelation, and there's this great passage right at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 21, where John sees this new heaven, this new earth, and he says in, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven is a great hope. All throughout the Bible, that just the reality of heaven is something that the biblical authors used to encourage believers. You're going through suffering, and, and Paul would say to the church in Corinth, man, this light momentary affliction is preparing in you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The reality of heaven. But not just the reality of heaven, the certainty of Christ's return. Let's think for a second about how Jesus ascended. He ascended in a cloud. And we're just going to go back to the Old Testament in your mind with me for a minute. The book of Exodus. <clears throat> the tabernacle is built, right? There's all those very specific instructions. It makes for some really riveting Bible reading when you're reading through that. All these instructions for building the tabernacle. The tabernacle is completed at the end of the book of Exodus. And the presence of the Lord comes down in a cloud over the tabernacle. The cloud is so thick that Moses, of all people, can't even go in. And then think about the wilderness. All through the wilderness, those 40 long years, it was a cloud leading them, right? The pillar of fire, the cloud. Now, let, let's jump ahead in history a little bit. We get the first kings. David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, you can't build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. So Solomon builds the temple. When the Solomon's temple is dedicated, once again, a cloud fills the temple so that the priests can't stand, the Bible says. They, they couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud. So with that, you go in your mind now to Luke chapter 21, and we'll read... Luke chapter 21, verse 27, we're talking about the coming of Jesus. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Just as Jesus ascended in a cloud, 
And you think all of this cloud imagery in the Old Testament here, Luke's saying, hey, when he, Jesus returns, it's going to be in a cloud. And remember, you, you get the first Thessalonians, and he's trying to teach the church there some things about the second coming of Christ. And he was like, look, we're going to meet him in the clouds. Not only is Jesus coming in the clouds, we're going to meet him in the clouds. There's all this, this cloud imagery, and all of it has to do with the certainty of Christ's return. This is our hope. This is the next thing that we look forward to as, as Christians. In fact, you know, a lot of times when we talk about things like the end times, uh, it can sometimes be like a source of controversy, a source of contention. But in the Bible, it's never looked like that. that it's always supposed to be great encouragement. In fact, in that passage in 1 Thessalonians, as Paul gets done explaining it, he says, therefore, because of everything I've said, encourage one another with these words. Hey, we have a great hope. Christ is coming back. There's a reality of heaven. There's a certainty of Christ's return. Another thing we see, because Jesus ascended, um, we understand more fully what it means to be unified with Christ, to be united with Christ. This, this idea of union with Christ is something that's all throughout the New Testament, especially all throughout the writings of Paul. If you really start paying attention to how many times Paul will write that we are in Christ, or we're in him. Um, several passages that, that we could look at. I want to look at a few. Uh, Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore with him, we are buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is Paul saying, just like Christ was buried, we were buried. Just like Christ was raised, we were raised. Because he was raised, we are raised. We are, we are one with Christ. His burial was our burial. His resurrection was our resurrection. His inheritance becomes our inheritance. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Just flip ahead just a little bit. Romans chapter 8. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Paul says, hey, <coughs> you are heirs of God. You are fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, one uh, theologian put it this way. He said, the one who sits on the throne of all power and authority in heaven and on earth is our older brother that his inheritance becomes our inheritance, that we are one with Christ. What a great thing. Let's look at a couple other passages. Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians chapter 2 is a great, great passage that we, we hear a lot. But man, it's just so good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. <coughs> Listen to what he says in verse 6. 
He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Last week, Brian introduced a phrase, the already and the not yet. This idea of inaugurated eschatology, that some of what we see has already happened, and some of what we see is still yet to come. When we read a passage like this, it's a great example. In some way, just as Christ has been raised and seated at the right hand of God, in some way, we are, we are seated there with him too, but not yet, fully, completely. You know what I mean? It's this, we feel this tension. It's already happened. This has not yet happened. We also see this in Colossians chapter 3. Just turn over a few pages in your Bible. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that verse. It comes right, that song that we sang before the throne of God above, comes right out of that, my life is hidden with Christ. What that means is when, when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he doesn't, he doesn't see our sin he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That we are standing there in the shadow of the righteousness of Christ. And that's why when we come, it's not, hey God, look, look at what I've done. It's nothing that we've done. It's Christ. What a great, great hope that we have. This idea of union with Christ. And one more I want to look at. The giving of the Holy Spirit. So turn with me to the book of John. And we're going to look at a few different uh, parts there in the book of John. We're going to look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and uh, let's start in verse 12. Jesus is saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. And then listen to this. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Can you imagine if you were one of Jesus' disciples watching all of the amazing things that Jesus had done and Jesus says something like this, greater works than I do, you will do. What does that mean? Go down to verse 16. Still Jesus talking. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Okay, go down to verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All right, flip over to chapter 15. This is still Jesus, still talking about this Helper, this Holy Spirit that's coming. John chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit makes the, the church's understanding of the person and work of Christ clearer. That's one of his, his jobs. Still talking about the Holy Spirit. Look with me at chapter 16. And, and this, I think, is, is fascinating. Verse 7. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And just like I can't imagine what it would have been like for him to say, hey, greater works than these will you do, I can't imagine what it would have been like for disciples who have been walking with Jesus to hear Jesus say something like this, it's to your advantage that I go away. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? How can that possibly be? Look what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I just want to look at a couple things that Jesus says here about the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This is the Holy Spirit's job of protecting the church from from just sliding away in, in doctrinal error. You think about how long the church has been around. How many heresies have sprung up? How many opportunities there were for for the church, the global church, to just slip away into into nothingness? And all throughout that time, God has protected the church through the work of the Holy Spirit, guiding us into all truth. And I think we can even apply that personally. As you're you're reading your Bible, man, before you... Before you open your Bible in the morning, just take a second, ask the Holy Spirit as you read to show you truth, to open your mind, to to clarify things that are confusing, and and watch the Holy Spirit work through, through his word. It's one of the things he does. He guides us into all truth. The other thing Jesus says is he will declare to you the things that are to come, keeps us pressing forward. In Christ, we've already talked about heaven, right? Heaven as our hope, heaven as a thing that we're longing for and looking for. And the Holy Spirit, man, especially in the middle of trials and suffering, the Holy Spirit is the one that says, man, we have this great hope. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep pressing forward. Don't give up. And then Jesus says, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit proclaims the word of Christ to the people of Christ. As we gather on Sundays, as we stand up here on Wednesday nights, as we open the word, it's the Holy Spirit that is moving through, through his word. It's not, as, as you're sharing the gospel, it's not if you can just get the perfect sequence of words and get the perfect argument that will answer every question perfectly. It's in the simple sharing of the gospel. That's why Paul called it The the preaching of the cross is folly. It's foolishness. It's the simple sharing of the gospel that the Holy Spirit uses to teach people about Christ, to open their hearts to the truth of Christ. And the the greatest example of this we see in Acts chapter 2, when the church was, was born. There on 
Pentecost, they're all together in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes in, in power. We see these flames of fire, whatever that means, whatever that looked like. Peter stands up. You know, Peter's always the one who stands up, right? Peter stands up, preaches this great, powerful message. Everyone there in all different languages are hearing their own language spoken. People are accusing them of being drunk, and Peter's like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, they're not drunk. It's the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people are saved. And they, they, the author, Luke, looks to the Old Testament. He says, this is, this is fulfilled. There, Joel said, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. So we see the Holy Spirit doing his job of, of taking what is mine, Jesus says, and declaring it to you. Okay, so that's a little bit about a theology of the ascension. I want to look at just a couple more things. Let's look at what we learn about the three offices of Christ through the ascension. We know that Christ is serving as our prophet, our priest, and our king. In uh, Acts chapter 7, there's the story of Stephen. Stephen's the first martyr of the church. And right before Stephen dies, God somehow opens his eyes. He is able to see into heaven. And he says, I see the heavens open, see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. One of the few times where we see that, most of the times in the New Testament, we see he's seated. Here, Stephen sees him standing. So some people have tried to explain that. I think any kind of explanation is really just, you know, conjecture and guessing. But I think one of the things that we learn from that is Jesus isn't glued to the throne. You know, it's... He sat down there to put the exclamation point on what he did, but, but he's, he's not just glued to the seat. He's moving, he's working, he's doing things in heaven, and, and he's serving in these areas. He's serving as our prophet. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews. We're going to go back to chapter 1, but we're going to look right at the beginning uh, in, in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. This is how the book starts. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Here the author of Hebrews is saying, it was prophets for a long time. Now it's Jesus. Jesus is our prophet. And, you know, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, you know that really it's this theme of Jesus is better. Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is the better high priest. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. All throughout Hebrews, you keep seeing them show these, how Jesus is better than the Old Testament shadows that pointed to him. So this is the first one we see. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is also our high priest. Look ahead to chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And if I were to ask you, you know, what, what is our hope? Where, where is really this anchor that we have as Christians? We see that here in Hebrews chapter 6. We have this, verse 19, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, 
after the order of Melchizedek. A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That Jesus is serving as our high priest. What does that mean? That Jesus is actively interceding for us. He's mediating for us from the right hand of the Father. We're going to see uh, what Hebrews says about this in some other places too. Look with me at chapter 7. <coughs> chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful thing. He always lives to make intercession for them. <clears throat> Look with me now at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats, verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then look down at verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Why? Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We're not going to turn there, but Romans chapter 8, the pastor just preached it a few weeks ago. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ serves as our prophet, our high priest, and he serves as our king. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Here's Jesus, the head of all rule, all authority. There's nobody above him. He's the king. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Remember that this, this right hand, all throughout the Bible, is this, this picture of this place of authority, this place of power and dominion. And here Jesus is, seated at the right hand in this place of all authority. He is the Lord of the universe. Right now, he's working his will in the universe. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. He's working all things for our eternal good and for his glory. And, and sometimes it's easy for us to talk about Jesus being Lord of the universe. <laughs> we're, not, we're not as interested in talking sometimes about Jesus being Lord of every person. Because then when we start thinking about that, we're like, well, well he's Lord of every 
part of every person. He's Lord. He, he has the final say over how we live. He has the final say over how we, how we use our money, where we live, the relationships we form, the dreams that we have, the plans that we make. Jesus is Lord. So as king, he's not just king of the universe, which he is, upholding the universe by the word of his power. What a great picture of his majesty and his might. But not just that king, he's also your king. He's my king. That great YouTube video, that's my king. He's our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king. Now let's just talk for a couple minutes on, on why this matters. How do we apply this? Really, every doctrine that we, that we talk about should, should cause us to love God, to love him more deeply, to, to really have a heart of thankfulness, of awe and worship. If, if as you study the Bible, um, you're doing it to you know, win an argument, you're doing it wrong. The, these doctrines are us to worship God. And, and so, so why does this matter? I think it matters for three, for three reasons. Because Jesus ascended, because he's at the right hand of God, because he's interceding for us, we can pray with boldness. Go with me to Hebrews, again, chapter 4. And I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have confidence to enter. And think about how groundbreaking this was to write something like this. Remember, the book of Hebrews is going back and looking at all these Old Testament pictures of Christ and showing how Christ fulfills everyone, but he fulfills them in a better way than any of the Old Testament pictures. And so... The presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, the temple, it was, it was the high priest. It was one man, it was once a year, that could go in there. And so here, he's saying, we have this high priest now who's gone into the heavens. He's gone before us, he's gone ahead of us, and because of that, because of what he did, we can with confidence draw to the throne of grace whenever we want. Anytime we want. What a great encouragement. I mean, we have boldness to come before the throne of God. Um, 1 John, you don't have to turn there, I'll just turn there quickly, but there's a, a verse in 1 John chapter 2 that says a similar thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. We can pray with boldness because Jesus said, hey, come, come to the throne of grace. We can pray with boldness because Jesus is our advocate with the Father. 
not only pray with boldness, but I think we can proclaim with confidence. You all know the great commission there at the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's commissioning them for, for the mission. And he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we think about the gospel, the the ascension of Jesus, the intercession of Jesus, the mediation of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, those are all part of the gospel. The gospel is not just that Jesus was born, just that he was crucified, just that he was buried. He was raised to life. He's now seated at the right hand of God. He's interceding for you and me right now, and he's coming again. There's an old liturgy in the church that says Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That is the gospel. But think about what that means. We can proclaim the gospel with boldness because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. He's the God-man. Remember how Paul wrote it in Timothy? There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. In heaven right now, Jesus is the only one who has conquered death, who's there, and he's not there as a spirit. He's there in bodily form. He's conquered death. There's a great passage in the book of Revelation, and, and we sing the song, Is He Worthy? We just sang it this past Sunday. You like that song, Is He Worthy? Man, I love it. And that song... Uh, a lot of what's written in that song comes from Revelation chapter 5. There's this great vision of heaven. And I love this. Let's just read uh, a few of these verses here. Um, look at verse 6. Revelation. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here he sees the, the lamb, it's not dead, it's not laying, it's standing as though it had been slain. Go down to verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, this infinite, countless throng of people, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What a great picture of the throne room of heaven where Jesus is there, this Lamb standing as though he had been slain. He's there in heaven right now, bearing the marks of the crucifixion that he did for you and me. We can proclaim with boldness because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And then lastly, we can live with hopefulness. Go with me to Hebrews one more time. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 
Of course, Hebrews chapter 11 is that great hall of faith, right, that we call it. And you get to Hebrews chapter 12, and he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we live, and the author's here encouraging us, man, let's lay aside every weight. This sin, it clings so closely. Let's lay it aside. Let's run this race. And all the time, every step of the way, let's look to Jesus. He's our hope. He's what we're aiming for. He's our confidence. Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And every step of that race along the way, Jesus is there advocating for us, mediating for us. Every prayer that we pray, he's there interceding for us before the Father. What an awesome picture of what Jesus is doing for you and for me. I'll close with this. Uh, a few years ago, 2017, I had the privilege of going to Germany. Um, October 2017 was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and so I did what they called the Land of Luther tour. And um, Martin Luther's a fascinating character, and so you get to travel around and see all these different places where he was born and where he lived and where he went to school and where he served in ministry. And uh, Martin Luther has this great, great quote, and we'll just, we'll close with this. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares to you that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, now I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And where he is, is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us even now. So let me pray, and we'll close. Father, thank you for the great hope that we have, that Christ as our great high priest, as our king, as our prophet, thank you for the way that he lived, thank you for the death that he died, Thank you for the fact that he is now seated as Lord of the universe. May it give us hope and confidence today and every day as we live this life for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.